Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. While it does not alter the outcome of this case, the Minister is accordingly not obliged to treat the unborn as having constitutional rights other than the rights contained in Article 40.3.3. It's Wednesday, March the 7th, and you're very welcome to this edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. You just heard uh, Chief Justice Clark delivering a very important uh, judgment this morning, which has just been delivered by the Supreme Court, something which the government was waiting for before proceeding with plans for a referendum on the Eighth Amendment. Uh, on today's show, a little bit later, we're also going to be talking about Brexit with uh, Queen's University academic Katie Hayward, who is one of the foremost experts on the subject and what it might mean for the border and the island of Ireland. But first, I am joined by our political editor, Pat Leahy, to discuss that judgment, which we just heard a couple of minutes ago, Pat. Um, this is a kind of a klaxon sound. All systems go for the government. Everything ready now to move towards the referendum. Yes, that clears the way for the next stage to take place um, to uh, to allow the uh, to allow the referendum to happen in May, and that will happen pretty quickly. So we expect uh, a cabinet meeting is likely to take place uh, probably tomorrow. That will approve the referendum bill, which is the legislation that sets up the referendum, uh, includes the wording for. Uh, uh, for the proposed amendment of the Constitution. And once that legislation is introduced in the Dáil, it must be passed, of course, uh, in the Dáil. Uh, and, uh, but but it, it, it will be, there's little doubt about that. Um, once that uh, legislation is introduced in the Dáil, likely to happen at a special sitting this Friday, then the referendum commission can be set up. And that really is, I suppose, the formal start to the campaign. Albeit, as we've discussed here before, the campaign has been in reality, has been ongoing for several months. The formal start of the referendum uh, campaign will take, uh, uh, will take place once that legislation is introduced to the Dáil on Friday and the referendum commission uh, is set up. We won't get an exact date until later in, uh, probably later this month, when the referendum bill is passed through, uh, uh, through the Dáil and the Shannad uh, all that is that is now likely all to, to happen according to the government's timetable okay. as a result of this judgment. As a result, of, uh, was there any prospect that it was going to go the other way? There seemed to be great confidence. Was there in the government that there we would was, get judgment on this? There sort? was a high degree of confidence from anyone in government that I spoke to that this judgment was going to be uh, was going to be overturned by the Supreme Court. Also, that was pretty much the unanimous view. Uh, amongst any lawyers that I spoke to. Now, I sat in uh, for a couple of days in the hearing of this appeal in the Supreme Court two weeks ago, and uh, I, I, I must say I was less sure than everybody else that it was going to be uh, that it was going to be overturned, which perhaps shows you how much I know about uh, uh, about the law. Yeah, you're, in the, right, happened, you're in the right job. But <laughs> what happened uh, today was pretty much a slam dunk for the 
for the state side. The High Court finding by uh, Mr Justice Humphreys that the unborn had rights beyond the Eighth Amendment, which is in the Constitution as Article 43.3. In the High Court, Mr Justice Humphreys found that there were rights uh, elsewhere in the Constitution for the unborn, including but not limited to the Children's Rights Amendment, which the High Court, uh, uh, High Court found um, included uh, rights for the unborn or included the unborn under its purview. The Supreme Court has now said Mr Justice Humphreys was wrong, that the High Court erred. It has overturned that judgment. It is not uh, It is not the law and it is said quite clearly in a very concise summary of the judgment by, um, by the Chief Justice has said that the rights uh, for the unborn in the Constitution are limited to the right to life under Article 43.3 and what that means is that if that article is changed, then that removes the there rights. There aren't other landmines around, 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 around the Constitution. Although, the although, although we should say as well that you know the plaintiffs did actually they they, they did win their case in this instance. And yeah, uh, this was an immigration also, justice case. Justice also made, yeah, yeah, you know, it was made an immigration to the case fact that the minister for justice in relation to this proposed <clears throat> deportation should take account of the fact that a child was going to be born. That's that, that's entirely right. So in, in in some respects, everybody, on at least in, uh, in both sides of this case, is uh, is a winner. I'm sure anti-abortion groups will argue that you know it's a it's a blow to uh, constitutional protection for the unborn. But what it does mean is that once if it, it, once a referendum takes place. And if the referendum is passed by the people and Article 43.3 is removed or altered within the Constitution, that um, it will not be possible to argue that there are other rights for the unborn within the Constitution. And that was a concern uh, in government. That concern has now been removed and this judgment clears the way for the path to the referendum to take place. So the, the bill is there. When, when are we likely to see the wording of the bill? I, I, I would imagine that what will happen now is that the draft wording, which the government... Uh, has already uh, has already which approved some weeks ago and has published that draft wording will now become the wording the wording of the bill the the referendum bill will be uh, will be finalised it will be introduced and I'm all. presuming that equally the government has its eye on a on a respected judicial figure to chair the referendum commission my understanding is that uh, somebody has already been tapped for that that's uh, they're likely to be announced either uh, once the once the bill is introduced in the doll which is uh, as I say. According to what the Taoiseach said on the doll yesterday, um, is likely, and what the Minister for Health also said, is likely to be uh, introduced on Friday, Friday morning. So the doll will agree to sit probably later today or tomorrow. The doll will agree to uh, a Friday sitting to introduce this. Uh, the, the referendum. And just to be clear on the role of the referendum commission in in this, as in any other referendum, what's its job and what does it do? And once a referendum commission has been appointed, what impact does that have on the way in which the the debate is conducted? Yeah, to a certain extent, I suppose the, uh, the the referendum commission is kind of the referee of the um, of of the campaign to the extent that is uh, that is that is possible. Of course, it's not possible in a in in, in a democracy uh, with free exchange of views, free media, and so forth to police uh, to police everything. But what they will do is they may they will issue information to uh, to voters. A referee probably isn't the best uh, analogy, but they will uh, they will issue information to voters. A moderator. They will, yeah, perhaps, um, and there would be broadcasting the the broadcasting regulations uh, about uh, about um, for uh, for for uh, for broadcasters about how about representing both sides and so forth. Mm. They will come into uh, they will come into play. They don't affect newspapers as such, but they do affect uh, broadcasters. So essentially, the formal campaign. 
uh, will begin pretty shortly. And I suppose also this week, you know, things are starting to, to, to ramp up now. There are two other things happening, I understand, outside these these, these formal elements. One is a, a meeting of those members of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party who are in favour of repealing the Eighth Amendment. Yeah, this was mentioned at last week's Fine Gael Parliamentary uh, Party meeting. Um, they're seeking to, to have a, a group of, uh, because clearly there's a, there's a, a vote of conscience within Fine Gael on the subject, uh, but there will be, but, but nonetheless the referendum will be promoted by the government and argued for by the government which Fine Gael leads and the Taoiseach has already made his position clear a large majority of cabinet ministers um, are supportive of the referendum the Minister for Health will front the campaign uh, I suspect and they're seeking for Fine, for, uh, Fine Gael TDs and senators to to form a campaigning group um, within the party so that's, uh, that's how many How many week. people do you expect in the parliamentary party to sign up for that? Now, I think it might be time to uh, for us to go back and update our referendum tracker on the intentions, the voting intentions of Fine Gael TDs. When, the la- when we last updated, which was some weeks ago, the legislation having been or the government's position having been made clear, there was still a large number of uh, undeclared Fine Gael TDs and senators. I would imagine there would be a majority of the party that will be uh, certainly, the majority of the parliamentary party will certainly be in favour of it. How many of them will... Well, uh, will we wish to actively join campaign. an active campaigning group uh, I, I, within I think, the party? Yeah, I think um, re- remains to be seen. Certainly, I think, you know, there are, uh, there will be a proportion, I think, of Fine Gael TDs and senators who will find themselves in the same position as Tornish to Simon Coveney, who has said that he will absolutely back and campaign for the referendum to change the Eighth Amendment. But the... What will follow that, the legislation that will follow that, which is along the lines of the recommendations of the Oireachtas All-Party Committee, which would allow for this legislation, which if the referendum is passed by the people in May or June, uh, will be introduced in the autumn by the government. That would allow for uh, abortion up to 12 weeks and beyond in certain uh, circumstances. Um, Simon Coveney has previously come out and said that he will not sure. be in a position to uh, to support that and indeed may offer amendments uh, to that to further restrict availability of, uh, of abortion. And I think there is a proportion of Fine Gael TDs and senators who will find themselves in the same, in the same position. And, but nonetheless, and perhaps, will it, be, be, perhaps it will have been emboldened to take that position by, 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 by his, the leadership. Yeah, yeah, and I think that was the, the in, in some respects, that was the real significance of, um, of Simon Coveney's intervention uh, uh, in, in that regard. But certainly the vast majority of the Fine Gael party will, uh, will support the, the referendum Referendum, uh, the amendment to the constitution as proposed in the uh, in the referendum, whatever comes after. And I suppose fi- finally, Pat, the other thing that's happening at the weekend on Saturday, as I understand it, is a, is a major retain the eighth rally, the first probably big rally of the campaign itself, and that'll be, I think, looked at very carefully as you know, as as a symbol of the of the respect, you know, the the, the strength of of that position. Yeah, People will be counting. My, Numbers are always very contentious when it comes to these I'm things. I'm sure and I think they'd be particularly the promoters of the march weekend. will. Uh, yeah. The promoters of the march will claim uh, that there were huge crowds there, and uh, the opponents of the march would claim uh, that there were three men and a dog um, there. So uh, I suppose we will try and do our own count. We'll talk to the guards and and uh, and figure out. Less important, I think, than the absolute numbers. Uh, by the way, I expect it to be very big because I think that. Um, the, the Save the Eighth campaign has, since Christmas, uh, has really moved up a couple of gears um, in response to, you know, the, the, the looming uh, 
the looming referendum. And I think that their their ground game at the moment, their canvassing, their postering and their social media game uh, has intensified very significantly in the last number of weeks. And I think that you will see that on Saturday. I think you'll see a big turnout um, for the march. And I think, you know, a, a signal that um, that this referendum is, uh, albeit that it enjoys uh, support, majority support in the polls uh, at this stage, that it will certainly be, uh, that will certainly be the, the proponents of repeal will certainly have a fight on their hands. And I think you'll see that on Saturday. Thanks very much for that, Pat. Uh, Pat's going to stick with us and we're going to discuss Brexit with Katie Hayward of Queen's University shortly. Katie Hayward, for the benefit of our listeners, maybe we could just start this conversation by laying out the the three uh, potential outcomes which were envisaged in the in the agreement, which we all remember um, happened in December. Yes, so there were three options that they put forward. Um, the first one was one that, in theory, both the UK and the EU would have as their preferred option, and that, that is an all UK uh, wide solution um, linking in with the EU that centres on potentially a free trade agreement that covers all the commitments made in that joint report. So that's upholding the agreement, avoiding a hard border. And, and, that's, and that's everybody's happy. It's a soft Brexit and uh, not just in the North-South relationships, but East-West in terms of the UK's relationship with the EU as a whole. Uh, there is, I suppose, a minimal amount of new friction at borders. Yes. Now, of course, they didn't say soft Brexit, but it would have to be a very soft Brexit if it's going to uphold the commitments made in that joint report. Um, a number of us would say that 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 first scenario isn't really possible unless the UK is willing to stay in the single market and customs union. So we, can't, we, we, we know that given the current political dispensation, that's, that's unlikely as it stands right now. Oh, yes. And even if that's specified in the joint report, funnily enough, that it actually says the UK will leave the single market and customs union. So any consideration of what avoiding a hard border might mean um, is... Is, it becomes almost, it's basically incompatible with uh, being the single market and customs union um, as, as is conceived in that first scenario. Okay, well, let's move on to option two then. Yeah, so option two is, it talks about specific solutions for Northern Ireland. Now, it's worth noting that uh, the UK, it's the UK government is, who is saying that they will commit to putting forward specific solutions for Northern Ireland under scenario two. And this scenario, too, is quite an interesting one because um, it's been interpreted a lot, particularly, I think, on the UK side as meaning technological solutions. So we may come back to that in our discussion. But um, it's, it would have to be a little bit more, well, rather a lot more than, than technology, because if you think about it, specific solutions would have to meet those unique circumstances in Northern Ireland again, is set, as is set forward in the 98 Agreement and as relates to North-South cooperation. If, if there is no agreed solution on either Scenario 1 or Scenario 2, it's then that we move on to Scenario 3. And uh, that talks about full alignment with the rules of the internal market and the customs union. Um, and the draft uh, withdrawal agreement and the protocol in Ireland, Northern Ireland that we saw last week that is essentially uh, a very pared-back um, 
proposition um, for that scenario three. It's the backstop option. And, and what does full alignment mean in your view? Well, it was interpreted at the time to mean that the UK would have to stay in the single market and customs union, essentially. Um, I, I don't think it, it does mean that necessarily. If we think about how it's been interpreted by the EU now in that draft protocol, um, they're looking at it very specifically in relation to Northern Ireland. And they're saying what would have to be done in order to avoid a hard border and uh, protect the operation of the 98 Agreement and ensure continued North-South cooperation. Um, so you're looking there at particular rules of the internal market um, as we do that, and that includes, uh, for example, um, uh, regulatory alignment in relation to the movement of goods. The goods in Northern Ireland would have to have the same um, maintained standards uh, for free movement around the EU. Um, it also relates to some other areas of North-South cooperation. If you were to have a, an expansive interpretation of what full alignment would mean, um, it would it would essentially mean um, covering a much wider range of areas such as we understand the single market to mean. It could include the movement of services. Um, the, the issue that I've always uh, tripped over is what full alignment with the rules of the customs union would look like. Um, because it's been quite clear uh, for understandable reasons from the EU, that you're either in or you're out of a customs union with the EU, and full alignment with the rules of the customs union is um, is quite an ambiguous phrase, I think. Okay, and yes, yeah, presumably has, has has yet to be resolved. Pat, one of the things it seems to me about the, uh, one of the, the the potentially emerging British position is just to, on that point of the customs union if there is full alignment with the customs union it could mean i mean if you think of the a lot of the motivation for brexit in the first place from some parts of the british uh, british political system if you leave immigration aside was this desire to negotiate free their free trade agreements with the rest of the world. Now, obviously, that's not compatible with membership of the customs union. But could it be possible, I wonder, Katie, that the uh, that that in the future, the British could observe the rules and standards of the customs union while negotiating its own trade uh, trade agreements with third countries out uh, in the rest of the world? I mean, it, it, it seems to me it, 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 it could do that, but it could only negotiate those trade deals on terms agreed with, agreed the, EU. with the EU. Yes. So there was an interesting piece by uh, Miriam Gonzalez-Durantes in The Guardian um, about 10 days ago. And she used to be a trade negotiator for the EU. And she um, pointed out that actually being in a customs union doesn't prohibit a state from having free trade agreements with other states, with other countries. Um, basically, what would be um, still allowed, if you like, if you're in a customs union with the EU, would be to negotiate deals with third countries that either don't have particular arrangements with the EU or that cover sectors um, that are not included in the customs union with the EU. So if you look at what the EU has as customs union with other states at the moment, they're actually all quite bespoke. Um, 
and um, some of them are much more um, expansive than others. Some include agricultural goods, for example, others don't. Um, so the UK could say, listen, in principle, we'd want to be in a customs union with you or we're willing to, we're willing to do that. Um, but we're very keen that um, services or financial services aren't included in that or agricultural goods aren't included in that. Um, and then that gives them the UK freedom to go and negotiate deals with other countries that may cover that se- those particular sectors. It, I, I just wonder, what sort of the specific examples of those pre-existing ones? Because I just wonder, is, is, yeah. is that, are those precedents going to really kind of meet the needs of the kind of the, the hard Brexiteers, which I, which I think Pat is referring to there, who have a dream of, you know, you know, Providing financial services in in in, in Asia or importing um, imp- importing agricultural products from South America or New Zealand or wherever. I mean, are those kind of yeah. meaningful parallels? Um, they are. I mean, we are talking about a, a you know a, a different situation here. Um, I mean, customs unions, as a rule, don't uh, you know they cover goods, they don't cover services. So, if you if you look at what um, some of the discussions that have been had already with with um, major players, such as India, for example, they're interested in in services, um, um, and that could be, you know, the, the UK wouldn't be prohibited from negotiating that with those third countries, even if it was in a customs union. Agriculture is a is a big one, um, and this is where it becomes particularly interesting for us in Ireland because. Um, uh, the, the, we were already talking about a sort of um, all-island regime for agriculture, the DUP, or even in favour of that. Um, if the UK wants to separate agriculture from the customs union, if it goes into a customs union with the EU, um, the EU would probably be quite relieved <laughs> because most of the controls and restrictions um, crossing a customs border relate to agricultural produce. For obvious, understandable reasons, they're quite anxious about food standards, etc. That would then free the UK up to go and make all those deals with South American countries or with the US or what have you about agricultural produce or uh, New Zealand or wherever. That's where you get the issue of a different arrangement between Ireland um, and, sorry, between Northern Ireland and uh, GB. And the GB could have those kind of arrangements but we we have this sort of the tricky situation of if that's the route that um, GB wants to go down, the UK wants to go down, it creates problems then for movement of agricultural produce between these islands. So it means a, a change in the standards that will be accepted in the UK compared to the EU. And that's when this need for a border between the EU and the UK comes quite apparent. Katie, I wonder, um, I was looking at the slides that uh, that you published detailing the different types of checks that are necessary on borders uh, in the case of different sort of relationships between countries. And I wonder, just looking at the, the, the option to uh, pr- proviso under the, the, the joint agreement the, the, where the British make uh, proposals specific to uh, to Northern Ireland. The, presumably, there is a, a scale of intrusiveness uh, of the uh, of of the checks necessary at the border, and uh, I mean a lot of the, the a lot of the British proposals, notwithstanding the fact they've been largely rejected by the EU, seem to be moving in the area of you know electronic checks and trusted trader schemes and uh, and and so forth. 
how in in practice do you think that it's possible to have those sort of electronic checks trusted trader schemes whatever that would be recognized as a soft border um so it's not the it's not the technology that determines whether it's a soft border or a hard border what the, what says whether it's a soft or a hard border is the barriers to the movement of goods say across that border um a hard border is hard because you have different regulatory regimes and standards on either side of the border and therefore restrictions or requirements for goods to cross that border are more difficult so yeah. what you're saying is no matter how swanky the electronic checks are they can't make a hard border soft if you look at the example of the US Canada which people keep um, referring to I mean very apparently that is that is a pretty hard border and technology is used to speed up transit across it but it doesn't avert the need for inspection etc what has really made that border soft or softer than it would otherwise be has been cooperation between the customs agencies on both sides and also a regulatory alignment in certain areas so reducing the barriers uh, reducing the difference in, in standards between the US and Canada and therefore uh, sort of relieving the need for those checks in the first place. So I was going to ask you, Katie, in relation to that at the outset, I was, I was planning to ask you, you know, when we pour scorn, as we have done in this podcast, <laughs> on things like Jeffrey Donaldson last year saying, well, you can toll your motorways down there in the south, why can't you have some similar electronic tagging system at the border? Or indeed, more recently, Boris Johnson famously making a comparison between moving from one borough of London to another and paying your congestion charge. Those kinds of approaches have tended to be presented here as absurd, avoiding the hard truths of the matter. Um, from what you're saying, I think we're right in saying that, aren't we? Yes. Uh, I mean, technology is very advanced, and there are good examples of um, using technology to, to, to increase efficiency. But we have to bear in mind the, the efficiency of technology really depends on the amount and the quality of information that those controlling the border have access to. That, of course, requires operators to be very detailed and diligent in giving that information, but it also requires these border agencies to have access to other types of information, such as may relate to mobile phone data or to vehicle tracking. And you have to have just a a significant increase in the amount of surveillance around the border. So you have all of that uh, that would necessarily increase if you're looking for a, a, a technological solution. But you'd still not get away from the fact you have also to have the capacity to have feet on the ground and, um, and inspections happening as may be required. Can, can I also ask you, um, just in relation to the, the, the politics of this uh, matter, you co-wrote a, an article in the Belfast Newsletter a couple of months ago, and it was really arguing that the best interests, the traditional, in a way, interests of unionism going back for for a century, uh, if they were to be expressed at this modern moment, would see the DUP fighting much harder than it seems to be right now for a, I suppose, a soft Brexit, for as much alignment as possible in the final deal between the United Kingdom and and the EU. And reading that, it struck me that in, in this area, in theory at least, although not apparently in practice, the DUP's objectives are very similar to those of the Irish government. I mean, the Irish government obviously is making the argument very much on the basis of the Good Friday Agreement and the necessity to keep, you know, to, to keep the border as soft as possible. But in a way 
silently in the background of the Irish government's strategy has to be the question, possibly the more vital question economically, of East-West relationships. So I'm looking at Sammy Wilson on on TV last night talking about how 80% of Northern Ireland's trade is with the rest of of the United Kingdom. It's equally true that the proportion of the Republic's trade that's with the mainland of Great Britain is much higher than it is with Northern Ireland. Yeah, Uh, and funny enough, I mean, if you... If you look at the if you look at the more sort of constructive rhetoric on on all sides, you could be reassured <laughs> in that you say they really we, we all want the same thing, right? We don't want a hard border. We want east west movement to continue freely as north south. I mean, um, and uh, we want to uphold the ninety eight agreement. That's all very that's all very positive. I think the problem has been in the framing of the choice as being um, Northern Ireland has to choose either it's closer to Britain or it's closer to Ireland. Um, either we have a sort of a, a, a free-flowing east-west or free-flowing um, north-south. And um, this this is a challenge, of course. This is what the 1998 agreement was so good at in, in avoiding that kind of choice um, and separating the constitutional question from pragmatics around how you manage that border. And um, that I think my sense is that the DUP has kind of been backed into a corner. It wouldn't people wouldn't like me saying that, but I think it's sort of being painted into a corner by the talk about the constitutional integrity of the UK being at stake here, and Northern Ireland being annexed, or um, you know the UK being dismembered, as Reese Mogg said um, the other day, um, because it, it's really conflating those issues. Um, and the only way we're going to have a solution to this very complex problem is to separate those things and look very pragmatically about what would be, what has to be maintained and what has to be protected. And I think that actually there's a lot of ground for the solutions to Northern Ireland that build on what's already there in the 98 Agreement. Um, David Fenimore and I have been writing about this quite a lot. Uh, if you separate it from that constitutional question. And and indeed, Baden, finally, you know, I mean, this is ultimately a political question. Uh, the two largest parties on this, on the respective parts of the island, the DUP and the Fine Gael, which leads the current government. Can you see in the current political landscape any sign for optimism that 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 we might get some kind of a deal that would work for for both parts of the island? I have to say very little, to be honest. You're right that it's a political process, but politics is the art of the possible. And the moment, you know, what is possible is constrained by reality and constrained by facts. And much of what the UK government wants or says it wants at the moment is impossible. It's not possible to make the facts fit it. So you can't leave the customs union and have a border that is as soft or open as it is now. And when the the UK government, you know, makes realistic choices in that regard, I, I think it will choose to leave the, the, the customs union and we will be looking at a border that is certainly harder than, uh, than it is now and might not be recognisable as a soft border by the Irish government right now. And I think at that point there will, be, there will come difficult choices for the Irish government. Does it settle and cooperate with, and, uh, with, with proposals for a border that is harder? than the one that is there now uh, or does it seek to uh, 
does it seek to hold the UK to the last part of the December agreement, um, which uh, I think could be very difficult. And so far it's had the support of its EU partners in the position that it's taken, or indeed its position, or perhaps a better phrase, its position has been exactly aligned with yes, its EU partners. It, uh, yes, but it would require to enforce the uh, in to enforce the December declaration would require the British to do things that they are um, that they say they are currently unwilling to do. Right, we um, should leave it there. But but um, I, I'll just say anybody who's interested in this subject should really follow Katie Hayward on on Twitter and uh, on her tweet account. There's a, there's a bunch of links to a bunch of really interesting pieces of research which she's doing and continuing to to do on this issue. So, Katie, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thanks very much. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider, and you can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.